This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, and William. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. Scott Shepard is a speaker, consultant, and a former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. During our conversation, Scott talks about his upbringing, the path that led him to the KKK, his rise in its hierarchy, experiences that led him out of the organization, his relationship with Daryl Davis, and his message for the U.S. related to racism and race relations. Scott's story is fascinating. He is a living reminder of the power of courageous, open-hearted conversation, love, and the fact that people can change. And as we aspire to create a more perfect union, his parting words are worth repeating. Never give up. All right, Scott. Well, I want to thank you again for doing this. We ran into some technical difficulties the first time, so it's good to see you again. And uh, and thank you for for joining the show and and agreeing to talk. Uh, it's good to have you on, man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, happy to be here, and glad we got things settled out with the uh, communications and the <laughs> sound uh, sound mess-ups. Likewise. So would love to start as we were talking before we kick the call off with kind of the basics of your story and its genesis. And maybe we could start, if it's okay with you, with the, the beginning and your upbringing. And I remember from our conversation last week that um, you, know, you, you grew up in some tough circumstances and maybe it makes sense to start there and begin the story from that point and then we can take it onward from there. Sure. Of course, uh, I'll start off by saying, you know, I was born in uh, Indianola, Mississippi. Indianola, Mississippi is in the middle of uh, uh, Mississippi Delta, which is uh, the home of B.B. King, and B.B. King came from Indianola. Uh, I'll add real quick that B.B. King was uh, a really, really important part in helping uh, help the racism improve in the Mississippi Delta. He's really a uh, good, uh, you know, so before that, especially his music also. But, uh, and we miss, miss BB King. But yes, I was born in Indianola, Mississippi, and uh, grew up in a very violent uh, family due to my father being an alcoholic. And back then, you know, of course, they didn't throw people. They didn't throw people in jail and send them to court or anything like that. They just threw them in jail and uh, sobered them up and let them out the next morning. And that's what happened with my dad a lot after the violence of beating my mother. And, uh, he did things like uh, carrying out. Uh, uh, destruction of the house. He would take a butcher knife and slice up the mattresses in the house, throw furniture out, you know, out the window. Uh, 
there wouldn't be any furniture standing up on its legs. Uh, there was a lot of abuse, uh, verbal abuse from my father to, uh, you know, all of the kids. Uh, there was five kids. And that's basically where I think where it started. I had a lot of anger, didn't have any, any self-esteem or, uh, well, basically I didn't like myself. I didn't like anyone in the family. I didn't feel like I had a family. So I started looking for a place to fit in in the and course in the community at that time, right back in the 60s, 70s, was uh, a hotbed of racial uh, turmoil going on with the civil rights era and the, and the uh, marchers coming into town trying to improve their, you know, their right to vote. And, uh, I was looking for a place to fit in, and at that time, there was the white supremacist movement, and more so the uh, Ku Klux Klan. So I ended up joining uh, or communicating with the Ku Klux Klan. Excuse me. But ended up uh, communicating with the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, I had gone down to Louisiana, Met with the Imperial Wizard at his house. Uh, the office was on 700 Florida Boulevard. I, I guess I rolled up and down the highway in front of that place a hundred times trying to catch someone there. And then I found out he lived on Eden Church Road. And I went to Eden Church Road to his house and he was there. And I knocked on the door and he accepted me in and we talked and then he informed me that there was going to be a Klan rally in Tupelo, Mississippi, which was pretty close to where I, I lived. And so I ended up going to that rally and meeting some of the members. And they put their hands on my shoulders, had me on the shoulders, said, you know, you had a bad life. We'll take care of you and, and protect you and, and, and teach you. And, as I always say, they talk to the rockers, talking the wrong thing. And that's, uh, you know, basically where I got involved with the Ku Klux Klan. And it lasted probably, probably 20 years. Yeah. I remember you mentioning last week when we talked that, you know, a lot of the similarities between your journey to being interested in the KKK and the, I think what's a common story of young men who end up joining gangs, right. you know, they, they come from a, an environment where there's not a lot of support, not a lot of stability. And that's a, for many people, an innate need to try to find a tribe. And I'm curious to know at that point in the, you know, roughly sixties and seventies in Indianola, Mississippi, was the KKK in your mind the first organization that really sprung to mind as being capable of filling that void in your life? Were there other groups you were considering joining at that time, or was really the Ku Klux Klan the, the top option? Well, basically, the Ku Klux Klan was, because at that time, uh, you know, the gangs and the gang life uh, was Indianola, a small town. The gangs and gang lives weren't very prominent at that time uh, in that area. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if they were very prominent in the big cities, uh, you know, at that time. 
But uh, yes, Ku Klux Klan was probably the first one. Now there was the White Citizens Council that uh, the birthplace was Indianola in 1954. But uh, it was mainly made up of uh, businessmen in the community. And then, of course, it spread the nationwide organization. But the, yes, the Ku Klux Klan was probably the first one that came to mind because they were the ones that were uh, there at that time. Yeah. If maybe we could continue this, Scott, and talk about the the first time you went to the Imperial Wizard's house. And I know from talking to Daryl, I know from talking to you, an Imperial Wizard, for those not familiar with the KKK jargon, is the top guy in the organization, essentially the president. What do you remember from that experience of going and trying to find him? And I'd love to know kind of where your head and your heart was at that time in terms of what you were looking for. Well, of course, I think at that time I was about uh, 16 years old. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I really don't. At that time, I didn't know what I was looking for. Uh, I just knew I didn't like myself and I had all those internal issues uh, within myself. But uh, the clan was there and, and of course I went to the Imperial Wizard's uh, house and knocked on the door. Very, I remember being very nervous. Uh, and he came He came to the door, let me in and we kind of talked about the clan and he explained me a lot about it, but there, there were things that he left out that, uh, you know, I really didn't know about. So, uh, but I went, went with the flow and ended up in Chippewa, Mississippi and uh, attended that rally. And like I said, the other members put their hands on my shoulders and, and uh, kind of draws me in that way. Kind of, a, that's, you know, pretty much one of the tactics that they do. And, and, as we said before, it's the same way as, you know, uh, gang members. Uh, I know I've talked to a lot of gang members uh, here, in, here in my area and uh, the Memphis area. And, you know, they, they were drawn into the gangs basically for the same reason. Yeah. What did he tell you? When you first were beginning to talk to him, and obviously he must have seen men or really boys like you before who were seeking something in the KKK. What did he say to you at that time? Well, he said, you know, he said he could give me a home and we'd have any as like a family. And and exactly that was exactly what I was looking for. I didn't feel like I had a family. I'd lost my family, you know biological family at the time that's how I felt um, and uh, you know so I, after meeting those two the guys in Tupelo uh, I made you know made it a, a, a point to join the you know join the clan and I did and I joined probably I think about 17 years old you know, looking as soon as I joined, I felt like you know I felt an immediate, immediate feeling of importance. I you know that's exactly what I was looking for, and you know the 
the really hardcore racial things that, uh, you know, the Klan taught, uh, was, you know, came later. They send you in the classes or, or group meetings at, at weekend retreats and, you know, actually program you to uh, believe that God. And before you joined, I mean, it sounds like in your upbringing, in your area, the KKK had some prestige, that there was some status that was associated with joining that organization or being a part of that organization. What did you know about the Klan before you actually became a member, before you knocked on the door? What was your impression of the organization? Really, I didn't know a whole lot about them except for what I had read in school. Uh, in the Mississippi history books. And the, the bad thing about that, the Mississippi history books that, you know, that I read, you know, read and studied in school, they, you know, they didn't teach the uh, complete story of the Ku Klux Klan. They didn't teach uh, or say that they were violent and they, and they didn't say they were nonviolent. They just taught about the Ku Klux Klan and what they stood for, you know, states' rights. And, and at that time, basically, the entire state, uh, southern states were, you know, fighting for states' rights. And, you know, that's basically where it went from there. They didn't get into the uh, violence that, you know, was perpetrated by the Klan. So your understanding of the Klan prior to joining was basically as just an organization, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that it wasn't a particularly violent or dangerous organization. Is that correct? Uh, right. That's correct. I had, I had, you know, you know, at times heard of you know, some violence, but, uh, you know, at that, at that time with the mentality uh, that I was in, and the, you know, maturity of my brain at that time, you know, I really didn't put much focus on that. Um, I just, you know, I just basically was interested in finding what I was looking for. And that was a, a family and, and someplace to fit in. Yeah. And if they, if, if in the Mississippi textbooks, the, the history of violence was not a part of the story of the Klan, what was the story that you were told of what they were all about and what they were trying to achieve? Uh, basically that they were political, you know, they, they were, you know, interested in politics. And I guess, I guess they were at some, at some, uh, extent, but they were basically in, you know, in politics states rights protected in the south from the you know influx of uh, minorities coming to uh you know get improve their voting rights and you know basically you know things of that you know on that path yeah so a political entity really and a cultural uh, organization that was trying to preserve southern history Southern culture, it sounds like. Right. Exactly. This story, and I think your story is so interesting for so many people because they, 
they've never walked into an organization like that and had the experience you did in becoming intimately involved in the details of the KKK. And I'd be curious to know as you began to become a member, and it sounds like you were still almost a boy. I mean, 16, 17 years old, you're not even legally an adult. You begin to get involved with the Klan. Was there a point at which you remember there being an explicitly racial agenda with explicitly racist views being expounded, talked about, encouraged? Did that come later or was that something that was pretty immediate upon your entry into the organization? It was, I would say it came not a, uh, not a long period of time, but it was something that came in a little later and then they started programming this stuff in, you know, into uh, not just myself, other other young uh, teens and even well, and uh, other adults that you know were trying getting involved in the clan. They you know this came at a different you know later uh, time. Yeah, and I I want to spend ample time today talking about some of the more reprehensible views of of the clan and activities of the clan but i do want to highlight the incentives that worked for you and for probably a lot of boys like yourself you know the the attractiveness of an organization like that and you've already talked about a couple of them a couple of those aspects one is just a feeling of importance two is a sense of family were there other components to the clan that also were drawing you in it sounded like there was potentially like some male mentorship or just sort of like older brother or fatherly figures that kind of took you under their wing well yes that was you know it that was it in a nutshell um you know you had these other members and you know they'd take you you know take you under their arm and and spend time with you and go to you know Camp. Well, actually, the camp uh, meetings were clan meetings, and uh, you know, there was they would mentor, you know, mentor us. Um, it was a. I don't know. It was a bit. It, it was also a struggle for me uh, inside that organization, you know, because I, I think you and I had talked before. Uh, the clan didn't know it. I never mentioned it to the clan, and probably if I did, uh, uh, you know, I may not have uh, exceeded or excelled uh, as fast as I did and as high as I did. But uh, I was raised by a black lady, and mm-hmm. if I had, you know, I could. Who knows? I could have ended up dead. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that to me as well, right? This was basically the woman who sounds like reared and raised you was an African-American woman. And I'd love for you to give some time to that story of of her and her role in your life when you were young. Oh, she she played a a tremendous part in my life. She, you know, I think... uh, it basically started my mother uh my mother was adopted uh and during that period uh 
when they brought my mother into the house uh, on a pillow. Actually, she was uh, you know still on a, just laying on a pillow. Rebecca Scott Hawkins was her name, and uh, I'm named after her. Matter of fact, that's where Scott came from. But she she was working for my grandmother at the time as a caretaker, and she was there when they brought my mother into the house. She raised my mother, you know, actually from birth and, you know, and into her semi-adult years till she got married. And she married uh, another, married a gentleman and had my older brother and my older sister. And then she divorced. And uh, my grandmother was one of those somewhat, she, you know, she wanted to be or tried to be, you know, high society, or, and she didn't like my dad, you know, my mother's second uh, husband. She didn't like my dad at all, and disowned her son, had said she wouldn't have anything to do with uh, the, the kids that were born, you know, after that marriage. And Rebecca took, you know, was the one that stepped in and helped and took care of us. So she basically raised my older brother, older sister, my mother, myself, and my two younger siblings. There was five, five of us. I'd love for you to talk about her in as much detail as you'd like. What What was she like when you were a boy? Obviously, she was one of, it sounds like one of the most formative people in your life. What do you remember about her? What was her personality like? Oh, uh, she was more... She was more than a caretaker, uh, as far as I'm concerned. She was you know, not only that, but she was a mother. She was more of a mother figure to me, and uh, I, I looked at her that way. Uh, I, of course, I called her my godmother. Basically, she was more of a mother than godmother. Uh, my mother was a school teacher and had to travel uh, uh and of course, many miles uh, every day to the school she worked at. And, of course, at the time, I wasn't even in kindergarten. But uh, as I grew up and got into kindergarten, I would always go to Rebecca after uh, the day. And she raised me just like a regular, you know, regular son. Her uh, grandsons, I grew up with her grandsons. And would play with them and they were just, I mean, it was just like a one big fan, like, you know, one big family that you had. And, you know, it, it's, it really is kind of emotional because of uh, what I did and being raised the way I was, you know, by her. But I was so eat up with anger and, and hatred towards myself and other people that uh, I kind of I kind of set that aside and went on with my destructive life. Yeah, you alluded to this um, five minutes ago or so, related to the fact that if it would have been known as you were rising into the clan, and I want to get into that story here shortly, that that would have potentially spelled serious trouble for you that you had had that kind of an intimate relationship with that kind of a person. Um, talk about that a little bit. What, what do you mean when you say that? Is it, is it the case that in the clan, 
if it's known that you've intimately associated with African Americans, it's 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 a hit on you, your reputation. It's it's banishment from the organization. What happens to people that it's it's known have those kind of affiliations? Well, basically, you hit it spot on. Now, you know everything you said is you know is, is what uh, I was referring to. Uh, being that uh, you know I was so close and uh, with Rebecca that you know and her being a mother figure, it was just like I was you know a son of her. Uh, the clan basically uh, uh, is against that; they preach against that, and then, of course their rules old uh, old to enter the clan. You know, uh, forbid things like that, and in one of the uh, you know punishment for that is you know possibly death, even you know just like leaving the organization. Yeah. Let's get into your rise in the organization and knowing a little bit about you. It's it's fascinating. First, how quickly you rose in the organization, and secondly, how high you raised in the or you 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 quickly uh, escalated in in the organization. Talk to me about those years. You know, I you were in there for, as I understand it, fifteen or twenty years of your life in uh, right. in, in the prime of your life in many ways. Um, what do you remember about that time? for yourself as you were gaining ascendancy in the hierarchy of the clan what what was the the day-to-day life how was your mentality shifting if at all talk to me about that time well you know of course uh, i was a uh, uh, you know funeral director in bomb so uh you know i was working my regular job and the uh work in the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, not just actually the Ku Klux Klan, but uh, many, it was, you know, white, other white supremacist groups. There's not just one uh, Ku Klux Klan organization, there's many, uh, uh, I'd say hundreds of them, and they got different leaders, different, not necessarily, they do have different beliefs, but not, not any that uh, make, you know, make them really any different each other they still have that one goal of white supremacy uh trying to do away with the uh, black race and not just black race but the jewish race also they're very anti-jewish which uh when i when i first joined they wasn't they weren't really into the jewish you know jewish deal they you know they just you know, at that time there wasn't an issue, but it did, you know, grow into a, a, a time where they really were against Jews more than they were, you know, minorities, blacks. And so, I don't know, my day-to-day life wasn't so, you know, I, I you know, I was pretty much really really into the organization i've you know really gotten uh excited about it because i found what i was looking for the importance 
and I excelled pretty quick and ended up at the Grand Dragon. And the Grand Dragon is a state leader, uh, the actually like a governor of the state. I was head of the state of Mississippi, at, uh, I mean, Tennessee, at the age of 19, which is, uh, it really doesn't work, you know, it needs to work that way. The members to preach at, uh, you know, that rank usually are a lot older, but I, you know, I excelled and, and I guess impressed the, uh, Imperial Wizard and became, you know, Grand Dragon of the State of Tennessee. So, uh, oh, I was, I was really high on the hall, man. You know, I, you know, I, I thought I was someone. Yeah. I'd be curious to know, given your upbringing and your close relationship with the woman, your your godmother, right? The The woman who you're named after, who help to raise you, you know, you're leading, as you said, you're the state leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Tennessee. And I think you held that position for years. You're espousing, your organization is espousing overtly racist views. Did you actually believe that stuff, given the fact that you had had this woman have such an effect, such a loving influence on your life growing up? Did you actually take in that ideology or did it, was it really more something you had to say, had to fake to stay in the organization that you wanted to be a part of? Well, you said it. it you know, I had, it's something I had to uh, say and preach. Uh, I, I describe it all the time as I had, you know, I had this little bit of voice in the back of my head. And, uh, you know, always, always ask me, do you really believe in the things you're preaching and, and what you're, uh, you know, participating in? And I always had that little bitty voice. I ignored it, but it was there. And, you know, it was true. I really didn't believe the things that was, you know, being taught. Actually, uh, after... After I got out of the movement uh, and started, you know, working for racial uh, unity and, and trying to help keep kids from falling into the same trap that I did, I got a uh, message on Facebook one time from a gentleman. It said, you, you know, you never were a member of the Klan and you know, several other things. I said, you're right. I told him, and, and I, I was very respectful to him, and, you know, a human being. And I was very respectful to him. I said, you're right. I, you know, I wasn't, because I never really deeply, deeply believed in the things that was being taught and preached and espoused, uh, you know, by the clan. And I carried on that little conversation with him, you know, a few times, I mean, a few minutes. And then I asked him about his background. He told me that uh, he had been a board of the state at one time and came from a very dysfunctional family and was into drugs. And, uh, you know, that kind of solidified the 
uh, you know, beliefs that I've always had and, and other people too, you know, that's, that's the target that uh, these clan groups, you know, aim for the people that, uh, you know, have a terrible life. So this gentleman was no different than I was. And actually he contacted me two or three times after that, but finally he kind of faded away. And, you know, I don't know where he's at, but I, you know, I hope what I had to say to him affected him some way that he, you know, got out of the clan. I know he, his family had been members uh, years and generations in the past, but I hope, you know, maybe somehow I put into that generational, you know, negative uh, lifestyle. Yeah. I think that's for me why these stories are so fascinating to unpack is to get at the root cause of why so many people join organizations like this and what the co- to increase an understanding of why human beings are drawn in uh, to organizations like this. You mentioned earlier that at the very beginning, there wasn't necessarily an overtly racist draw or an overtly racist message that you got. But very quickly, once you joined the organization, that was a part of the messaging. Um, I'd love to hear, as you are the Grand Dragon of the state of Tennessee for, for those years of your life, what's the objective that you're trying to accomplish? What, what are the goals that you're setting and how are you going about trying to accomplish those goals? Well, you know, first off, let me say, you know, I, I take full responsibility for the things that, uh, you know, that, that I did and the decisions I made, I made a lot of negative decisions, but, uh, I just wanted to throw, you know, throw that in, but, uh, you know, as Grand Dragon, you know, headed the state of uh, Tennessee. Uh, actually, you know, I, I was pretty much head of Mississippi too because I don't think they had a Grand Dragon at the time. But, you know, the goals were strictly white supremacy. You know, they wanted to uh, uh, force defense uh, or force minorities back to their homeland in Africa. You know, and actually, I say homeland. That, that was that was the idea at the time. And, you know, of course, their homeland now is America. They're Americans, just like we are. But at that time, we looked at them as foreigners and uh, belonged to, uh, you know, deserved to be uh, taken back to Africa. You know, whether on their own or forceful, but. You know, they, this is a white homeland. That's what they thought. The United States is white homeland, and they wanted to, uh, you know, if if minorities stayed here, then, you know, they wanted to have separation of races. And it was a very, you know, very distorted, you know, very distorted lie. I mean, uh, idea. They had... Um, Christian identity, which is a white supremacist religion, and a lot of them practiced that, and they would take the uh, regular, you know, 
legitimate Bible and 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 take verses from it to to and distort them and so that they would fit their agenda. So it was uh, it was basically you know white supremacy. They were the most supreme race on earth and. Like I said, that's basically it in a nutshell. They wanted to control the entire country. Yeah. And during that time and with those goals of trying to get African-Americans sent back to Africa, separating the races in the country, explicitly white supremacist ideology. Where are you in your head and your heart at this time? I mean, are you still having this voice in the back of your head that doesn't necessarily believe this stuff? And if that is still there, that for lack of a better word, that conscience inside of you that is, you know, directing your moral compass in another direction, or at least throwing doubt into what you're saying as as a leader of this organization how how did you live with that how did you how were you able to keep going if you had such doubts yourself was it really just the continuous need for family for a hierarchy in which you're you're growing and you're excelling um, how do you square that circle, that cognitive dissonance, you know, having two separate beliefs at the same time that are completely contradictory, contradictory to one another? How did you, how did you, how did you navigate that? Uh, you can't, you yeah. can't, uh, I mean, you, two separate lives like that, you can't, and then you can't, you, you can't do it. Uh, I know, you know, of course, after I got into the movement, there was, you know, there, sure, there was, you know, the violence. There was violence, beatings, and, and uh, uh, gang, you know, gang beatings, things like that. But I was able to avoid, you know, put myself in a position where I could avoid being involved in that because at that time, like I said, you can't, you can't combine the two. I, you know, I start. I started. Uh, I started having doubts. You know, you know, this is something I really, really don't want to be a part of anymore. And this is after I'd been in a number of years, and I didn't want to be involved in it really anymore because of it was eating me up inside. Yeah. I, you know. I mean, literally, uh, they, you know, they, they say the negative things that you do will, will eat you up inside. And it did. I ended up, uh, uh, losing three fourths of my stomach due to, uh, stomach ulcers. And I have no doubt in, in my mind or whatever that that's what, you know, that's what caused it was. What you know, the life that I lived was living and had lived, and uh, it liked to kill me. And I, you know, of course, today I'm still uh, still suffering from you know repercussions of that. I've had probably uh, 
probably 20 between about 25 different surgeries and each up in size and I knew that uh, I, I had to I had to lay that life down and do something that you know the, the something of a positive nature and that's when I start I made the decision to leave the clan uh, whether I was killed or not but I made the decision to leave the clan and uh, I did and I think I may have told you I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana with my sister that had uh, she had, she had breast cancer and she was in the hospital there in Baton Rouge and I spent a lot of time I actually we were there when Hurricane Katrina hit and we sat on the floor watched Hurricane Katrina come in and then she ended up back in the hospital and uh being a funeral director and bomber, I, joined, I volunteered to assist with the, uh, you know, the teams that were recovering the bodies from the hurricane. But, you know, I, I, I was spending the nights with my sister there at the hospital, and we had a lot of time to talk, just her and myself. And she asked me the question. She said, you've been, you know, all the things that you've done in your life, do you regret them? I said, yes, very much so. And she said, you know, you can take those things that you've done and turn them around and, and help other people. And I didn't, I mean, I heard her, but I didn't put much thought into what she had said. And then the, the health problems started and I lost part of my stomach and had to have another sur uh, major surgery and surgery. And I had a lot of time to think, you know, I'd, I had, there was twice I had almost died and I had a lot of time to think, think about the things that I had done. And as I laid there, you know, for, for, weeks recovering Discovery Channel came on and the Discovery Channel was uh, showing a TV sec uh, segment of Daryl Davis who is a music musician from uh, from Maryland I think you know just right outside of uh, Washington DC but I had heard of Daryl while I was in the clan, and I thought, you know, I shrugged him off as a nutcake. And I'm sure I called him, you know, a, a number of uh, negative terms, even the N word. And, but what I heard when I was listening to him that time on Discovery Channel, what he said made sense. And I picked up, well, I didn't pick up the phone, I found him on Facebook at that time and made contact with him and then he responded and we you know we talked on the phone a number of times and uh daryl you know of course became my brother and that's how we got into doing the things that we do now together we work work together a lot with another uh 
a number of other people and tried to, you know, make a positive improvement in this country and elsewhere. Yeah. And I want to get into your relationship with Daryl, which is how you and I know each other and got connected was directly through him when I spent an afternoon with him in Maryland in his house earlier this year. And before we get there, I want to talk about your evolution within the clan. And one thing I want to highlight is, is what you mentioned earlier related to the risk to yourself and your safety that you very well knew was there if you decided to leave the clan. You know, this happens in some religions, you know, an apostate in the Muslim religion, for example, in some areas of the, of the world, if you leave, there's a threat of death to you if you decide that you are going to exit. And it sounds like you were well aware of that reality, that that was something that could very well happen to you and probably had happened to prior members of the clan who had decided to get out. Um, your evolution to that decision, you know, I'm curious, and you mentioned the Discovery Channel episode that you watched about Daryl Davis and his work and his message and what he had said. Your decision to leave, was it really a specific moment with a specific revelation or was it really more a, a gradual process for you over time where you had had enough doubt and you had ex been exposed to enough other information that made you change your mind. How do you think about that for yourself in terms of how you, how you changed? I think it was a pretty much a gradual um, uh, thing that happened. I, I'll go back a little bit and uh, I'll give you a little information. I think which kind of, uh, planted the seed of uh, myself, you know, getting getting out of the organization and leaving was, of course, I, I was, you know, full-blown in the Ku Klux Klan at the time in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Pulaski, Tennessee's birthplace of the Klan. They were having a rally there in uh, Pulaski, and I had had to file a lawsuit on for the Klan on behalf of the Klan to uh, and sued the city of Pulaski because they denied us a permit. And, of course, we got actually got the permit, but it was a whole different day. But I had, uh, you know, I had, I, I had gotten so, so deep into to this organization. And at that time, I don't know if you remember or not, but they had some mail bombs that was going off in Alabama and Georgia. And those mail bombs, the, the gentleman did it, made it look you know, look like it was a white supremacist uh, plot, to, you know, that they were trying to portray. And it ended up not being that. But, um, you know, I was spouting off and, you know, of course, rearing the guy, I mean, rearing the bomb zone because, you know, for the white supremacy or connection they were trying to make. But uh, it caused the uh, FBI, they, of course, they showed up at my work where I was working at a funeral home in Nashville. 
and questioned me. And of course, the question didn't go very, very well because <laughs> at the time I was in a uh, very angry mode, and uh, I think I, I think I called him Dennis Weaver. No, you know, New York cowboy because he came in wearing a hat, cowboy hat, and all that. Nothing against Dennis Weaver, but that's, you know, I was just, I was calling him every name in the book. But uh, all this ended up on the uh, on the news. And of course, they were, you know, I mean, every, I mean, I'm not talking about just one night. It was, you know, several, several nights in a row it was on the news. And I was sitting at a restaurant one night on uh, West, End, West End Avenue at Ashland. And I was eating and having a few drinks. And, of course, when I got up to leave, I, of course, headed down the road. I think I got about a mile down the road you know, uh, police pulled me over and that police officer pulled me over and then of course by the time I got out of the car there was more than one police officer there was a, you know I describe it as the ocean of blue lights and of course they knew who I, were, who I was they were you know keep an eye on me and at that time they, char- they charged me with uh Possession of a illegal weapon that was, you know, you know, you know, it's actually an assault weapon and illegal, and they charged me with that, having it on the seat of my car, and uh, I failed a sobriety test, and so that threw me into the court system. And when they threw me into the court system, I went in, you know to the judge and first appearance did all this and then of course I came out and I got a public defender and I went to his office and when I was there I knocked on the door and he told me to come in and when I did I you know, my eyes were went about that big and I said oh no he was you know he was an African-American lawyer and I said I'm doomed. He's not going to do. <laughs> He's not going to do anything to help me. I'm. I'm doomed. But I was wrong. Uh, he ended up, you know, probably fighting for me more than he has any other people. But uh, he, you know, and didn't charge me one time. You know, after he left his public defender's office, he went back into private practice, and he took me with him. He didn't, you know, I wasn't, I was no longer a member of the, uh, you know, uh, public defender's office. So he defended me there and there was uh, several other things that he defended me for, but I came up with the idea, I said, you know, I didn't come up with it. it. You know, it was a tactic been used for years and years by other people. And I said, you know, I'm going to go to an alcohol and drug treatment center and get the paperwork, go through it, get the paperwork, and take it to the judge and get the charges dropped. And I did. Uh, that's exactly what, you know, I did do that. But I went into the uh, treatment center on the first day. Uh, uh, I spent 
30 days there and I was very, I was very, you know, very confused, you know, when I went in, but I went in one person and came out another, another, and basically what that was was I was exposed to a lot of people of different color, uh, different uh, sexual preference, just you know, people, a whole gamut of uh, people of different beliefs and, and and colors. And I became, you know, became friends with them and got to know them. And uh, the seed was planted again. Actually, I was running for governor of the state of Tennessee at the time and uh, running a, a, a governor campaign out of... Uh, drug treatment centers, what I was doing. But after a while, I withdrew my name from that race, and it was the people inside, the way they treated me, and here it was, all these people that that I was against. They were showing me love and compassion, and it it changed my idea of, of these different people, and the seed was planted there, and, you know, it went from there as far as myself getting out of the organization and that whole entire movement. Yeah. And then you did leave officially, and I'm wondering when you do something like that, how that happens. If that's something that you have to, you know, you write a formal resignation letter you just try to disappear and save your safety. How did you go about actually exiting and leaving uh, the organization? Actually, you don't write a letter of resignation uh, when you leave the organization because you're not supposed to leave in the first place. Yeah. Uh, when I made the, you know, the, uh, let me see. I, when I made the definite determination that you know I, I was gonna leave, uh, I said you know I made a plan. I I actually I had gotten involved with a a clan organization. It was in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. Uh, I think Florida. I'm not sure it's so long ago, but it had been elected uh, Imperial Wizard of that organization. And after doing that, I found out that that organization and those members had only one thing in mind, was was, uh, destruction and, you know, terrible violence. They they wanted to hurt people and kill people, and that's something I didn't want to be a part of. And I was already in the mindset of leaving the organization anyway. And what I did is I made a final meeting uh, in Alabama, went to it, and then uh, backed up, went back to Tennessee, and uh, made no more contact with them. You know, that was it for me. I wasn't in the letter of resignation because I probably wouldn't live through, you know, live to get back to Tennessee. But uh, that's the way I, you know, I left. And yes, I received death threats, uh, many death threats. But 
I, you know, I, I couldn't let I couldn't let the death risk affect what you know what I knew was that I was doing was right. Yeah. If I heard you correctly about that story, you attended one final meeting in Alabama, and that was your last formal association association with the Klan. In that meeting. Did you indicate that you were leaving or did you just exit the meeting and never associate with the clan again? That was it. I never mentioned I was leaving or any, you know, any hint that I was leaving. I just left and that was it. Yeah. You ghosted the clan. <laughs> exactly. I'm exactly right. Yeah. Um, I want to get into the relationship with Daryl and maybe to start, it would be helpful to learn the timing of when you first made contact with him. Were you still in the clan when you and Daryl began to communicate or was that already after you had, you had, I, had I had already left, but it was really a, a, a dark period at that time in my life because here I was, I had just I had just turned my back on the clan and they probably didn't know it at the time, but uh, after after my non participation and contact with them, I'm sure they figured it out, but I was in a dark period of, of my life where I didn't have any friends at all, you know. Uh, the friends I had before I had joined uh, you know, join the organization. They didn't want to have anything to do with me because I joined clan and that was yep. involved in all that negative life. And then I had uh, didn't have any friends on the other side because they were clansmen. I disowned them, and uh, I, I really, you know, I was just there all alone. And of course, I knew I didn't want to go back to this. Uh, you know, clan organization, however, it did run through my mind because of the family atmosphere that I had, but uh, I didn't do it. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, of course, that's, that's where Daryl came in. I, you know, Daryl actually saved my life. Because I had, uh, uh, I even contemplated suicide. You see, I, I was so, I had got myself so deep into that. My mind was all distorted. Uh, and, and even though I didn't commit acts of violence, I root, you know, I was rooted on and just guilty for, for doing that as the people that was involved in the, uh, uh, violence itself, you know, I, I was I was so messed up. I, you know, I even you know I even tried to join the Italian Mafia and the uh, Irish New Irish Republican Army. And as as I say, I, you know I, I was so naive. I didn't know you had to be you know full blooded Italian to join the Mafia. So I would have been in a heck of a heck of a shape there. <laughs> <laughs> And would have probably ended up dead. Yeah. So I was making all kinds of bad decisions. And uh, Daryl, 
Daryl, you know, was there. And when I, you know, of course, when I, I saw him out, it, you know, his hand was immediately there, became my brother. Yeah. I'll give a little context about Daryl from my perspective. And then I want to tell, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the beginning of your relationship with him. I mean, I, I learned about Daryl a couple of years ago and he's a black musician has been for decades and at the root of his story and his engagement far before anyone knew who he was before he was a public figure as i understand it from my meeting him and from interviews that he's given he his first interaction with racist with racism generally was when he was a boy he was about 10 years old outside of boston he had lived a lot of his almost like almost all of his upbringing overseas internationally with all different colors of the human race and came back to the US and in a boy scout march was being pelted with rocks and he came home and asked his parents why he was the person being targeted with these attacks and they began i think for the first time to explain what racism is and he didn't believe them because he had never really experienced that before. And he was puzzled by a question that I think he took into adulthood, which is how can someone hate me who doesn't even know me? And I know that has been a theme in his life with so much of the work he's done. And on his own dime, with his own time, he has spent a huge portion of his life engaging with people, asking that at root, that fundamental question. And has sought out conversation with people who are have you know backgrounds in white supremacy and have been longtime members of the, the, the Ku Klux Klan, and has had an enormous influence over a massive amount of investment on his side in changing hearts and minds of people, not through judgment but through curiosity and love, and. I'd love for you to talk about that initial meeting between the two of you. It sounded like you talked on the phone, but eventually you guys met in person. And you can take this however you would like and, and run with it. But what was it like to meet him be, and begin to talk to him? And how did he affect you over the months and years that you two knew each other? Well, it, it, it was it, actually, it was that. How do you, how can you hate me if you don't know me? Was one of the things that caught my, caught my mind when I first heard. You know, was listening to Daryl and it got my head spinning in it because it made so much sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, and I've and I've borrowed that from Daryl and doing what I, you know, what we both do, and it made you know, like I said, it makes a lot of sense, but. The first, uh, of course, make contact over the phone. We did make talk a uh, number numerous times, but actually, when I first met Daryl, uh, Daryl Davis, I was in the hospital at Nashville. I mean, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and I had the day before. I had I was supposed to meet with uh, not really Daryl, but I think Daryl was doing it film uh, 
uh, doing some filming or something like that in Memphis. And I was going to meet him, you know, just for the first time. And I was going to meet a gentleman on Bill Street in Memphis. And before Daryl came in the next day, and waiting on that guy who got tired of Memphis, I started having a you know, a bad pain in my side. It got worse and worse. And I called him. I said, I'm not going to be able to stay any longer. I've got to go home. I went home and then I ended up in the hospital. Daryl came on in Memphis anyway and I was laying there in the bed and uh, knock on the door of the hospital and uh, I hollered at does it come on in and when I did uh, it was this it was this big man and of course I know you've seen him Daryl's a big man yeah and uh, he came in and that was our first meeting was right here in the hospital and uh I think he had a couple of guys with him that had some cameras, and I, I think we almost uh, both ended up going to jail because we brought cameras into the, in, you know, into the hospital and weren't supposed to do that. But uh, we visited a little bit. Finally, he left, and uh, I was able to, you know, meet him again when he was filming accidental courtesy. And he invited me to appear in that documentary, and I spent a number of days living in Washington, D.C. And it just, you know, it was a relationship that just, you know, grew, grew from there. And I mean, he, he calls and checks on me now, and I'll call him. It's hard to catch him because he's, you know, playing music. A lot of times out of the country, but uh, you know, like I've all, I mean, I, I, I can't say it enough. Daryl, you know, he's more than he's not just a friend or anything like that, he's a true brother, yeah, to me. And uh, I do anything for him, he's, he's, he's really been there. And, uh, I think that's what did it. Daryl had, you know, he's put his hand out to me and, uh, an open heart and was and, and sat down and listened to you know what I had to say and explained my life to him and he's been there for me. Yeah. He still is. And I'm not the only one. It's I mean he, he he's got a lot of people that he's developed a relationship with like that. Yeah. I want to tell a quick story before I ask you a bit more about him. You know, I, I said this to you last week when we talked in our initial conversation that when I met Daryl and I asked, I told him I was interested in trying to connect and, and talk to and interview someone who had been a former white supremacist. Um, he immediately picked up, took out his phone and called you and you picked up and you said to him, you're the only person I pick up phone calls for anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty clear that, that you, you two are, are tight and you spoke a little bit about his personality. And I'm, I'm guessing a decent number of people who hear this conversation will be familiar with him, but some won't be. And 
you know, I'd be curious to get your take on what it was about Daryl's approach to you that really worked, you know, that really resonated. Cause you know, a lot of people you've talked to a lot of people in your life, but there's something about him and something about his approach. I would imagine that resonated and, and stuck to the point where you speak about him in the way that you already have in this conversation. What, how would you describe that? What do you think it was about him that made that kind of an impact? Daryl, Daryl's approach to me was definitely, uh, of course, the first time he was definitely sincere. Yeah, and he approached me, uh, you know, with total, uh, total honesty, and uh, it, it was just like I'd known him all my life. And he approached me with, uh, you know, sincerely. He cared, you know, about me. And at, at that point, you know, any any fear or discomfort I had about meeting Daryl, you know, totally vanished. He was, um, I don't know, he, he, he laughs a lot. And... and course we told you know exchanged private jokes before that i can't can't say <laughs> can't, can't say on here but um i mean he was just very real i guess that's what the, what i how i would describe it he was real yep. he, you know he wasn't someone that had uh that was phony or had ulterior motives or anything like that he definitely was uh, a real concerned person. Yeah. I would echo that as well. I would reiterate that in my experience in meeting him. I mean, he's a unique combination of personality qualities in one person. It's almost like he was perfectly designed to do this mm-hmm. because he's obviously brilliant. He's eloquent. And he also has just an amazing temperament of making people, as you said, feel comfortable around him, even though he is this gigantic man. Um, And it's not, you know, that is a very difficult, tall order to walk into the living rooms and into restaurants with people who overtly hate you and win them over. I mean, there are a few people in this world who have that kind of skill to be able to do that and also do it, as you mentioned, in a sincere way where it's not, an attempt to gain political points or social status, but it's coming from the heart. It's coming from somewhere pure. I think you can feel that in someone oh, when you're is. around them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So he, uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it when he walks into the room and I mean, everything just lights up. He, I, I'll tell you some uh, little story about him being, uh, you know, being so large. Uh, he came, to, he came to Memphis one day. Uh, uh, him and I were going to do a, a panel discussion for the Martin Luther King. Well, it was the Civil Rights Museum here in Memphis that focused on Dr. Martin Luther King and, and his assassination. And they showed uh, accidental courtesy, the movie, the yeah. documentary that they did. 
But uh, he got to uh, Memphis and he said, man, he said, I forgot my ties. He said, do you have any, I got an extra tie or two that I could borrow? I said, Daryl, the ties I got aren't going to fit you. They're not going to fit you. You know, I'm, here I am. I, I, I'd been struggling with my stomach and everything else. And at one time I got down to 125 pounds. And uh, thank goodness I gained some back, but uh, I said they're not going to fit you. But behind, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, say anything much else about that. But I, I sneaked off to, uh, I think it was J.C. Penney's, and I think I bought him two ties and brought it back and let him use them. And uh, he tried to give them back to me, and I, I think I. I he may have kept them. I may have them, but uh, and ain't no way he could have wore ties for me. Yeah. You know, can you imagine that? They, yeah. they just uh, I don't even know if it fit around his neck and go <laughs> go one and go one butt. But uh, it's just uh, I don't know. He's uh, he's a uh, in my book. He's he's a perfect person. I I think he represents a lot of the best of us in the country and in our aspirations as a country. And, you know, I, that's where I'd, I'd love to maybe spend the end of the conversation talking about us now and America now. And what I so admire about him, and I would say this about you as well, is that what you have done with your life has taken a lot of guts and a lot of courage to, in your case, course correct and change. You know, I, I said this last week when we were talking that I love your story in part, uh, just as a quick anecdote, before our first conversation, I was watching um, a presentation at the King Center where you were on stage with Do Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter talking about, and Daryl was there on stage, talking about your your life and your story and you were obviously sincere in what you said to dr king's daughter in apologizing to her and she put her arm around you and those are stories that i wish got more attention in this country because i think they do obviously exist and they happen more frequently than i think a lot of people are willing to recognize of a recognition of being wrong and then getting forgiveness for that. And that that's part of the human story. We're all born mostly ignorant about life. And I hope as we develop as a nation, we can develop that ability to change our minds and be forgiven for that because we all are operating from a massive perspective of ignorance in my view of life almost all the time. And as we transition into kind of the post clan era of your life and what you've done over the last many years, I'd love for you to talk about that, what you do, what you've been up to. I know you do and have done a lot of speaking. So maybe we could start this part of the conversation by allowing you to talk about that and what you have found to be the most effective approach 
to talk to people who still hold overtly racist and white supremacist views, which I know is a lot of what you do now or have done after your time in the Klan is try to talk to people who are, you know, in that gang. Um, mm. w- what's the approach that you have found works? And I know this changing people can take years, right? I mean, it took you years to change, but here you are, right? And and uh, so I'd, I'd love for you to speak to that in as much detail as you would like as to what approaches you think are the wisest and most effective to try to reach people who are still harboring you know racist views or views that i think we all would agree are are rather evil um how do you think about that well first off I, you, know, you mentioned the king center i was very honored to be a part of that uh that panel along with daryl and also uh the very next year i was uh, you know asked to come back so Daryl and I both went back to two years in a row, and also I found out I was probably I think I was the first former white supremacy that had ever uh, been to the King Center and, and and stood there on the panel, you know, panel discussion discussing the issues that they had lined out. I was very honored for that. And that was a very emotional time with Dr. King's wife. And uh, it's a relationship that even continues today. Mm-hmm. I've, got her, I've got her cell phone number in my phone now. And I keep in touch with her and, and a very lovely lady and love her to death. But uh, I think as far as approaching people that uh, hold the beliefs that, that, that I did at the time, uh, you know, basically, you know, of course, approaching, approaching is, is like they, you know, like they are, they're a human being. And uh, I was a human being. I just took made wrong decisions. And, and basically, that's what uh, a lot of these people did, you know, that uh, ended up like I did. And approaching with... Uh, you know, as a human being and people and realize that people are changeable. They can be changed and uh, sit down with them. And, and basically, the, the, the main thing is communication. Sit down and listen to them. They, that's what they want. They, they want to be heard and they listen and want someone to listen to them. And that's what, you know, of course, that's what Daryl and I both do. We'll listen to them. And you find out after you sit down with them, as, as Daryl says, you sit down with them and uh, talk to them. And probably in about five to ten minutes, you realize that you got something, you got something in common. And that's what, uh, uh, that's what usually happens. You got someone in common, got something in common, and you build from that. And actually, that that happened with me and Daryl because I come, me coming from the Mississippi Delta, you know, uh, the birthplace of the Delta blues music, and I was very much into music, and still, you know, I still am. 
but uh, that's when I grew up listening to blues music, and uh, that's what Daryl plays. And he even goes down into that area and gets held workshops for him. And Daryl and I was able to, you know, build a, a, a better relationship by talking about the music and the blues. And I think that's a, a very important thing and one of the keys to you know, helping these people change. And uh, ironically, it, you know, it works. It really works. And, uh, but, I mean, you don't leave it at that. You know, you, you continue to try to have a relationship with them and stay in touch with them and, you know, and, and be their friend. And, uh, uh, like like I, I always say, never give up. You know, you can't give up. We, uh, you know, if we gave up, well, man, we wouldn't get anywhere. And definitely don't give up on someone else. It's a situation that you're in. If, if Daryl had given up on me or other people had given up, you know, there's no telling where I would have, uh, my life would have ended up. I love that message, and I think it's powerful now in many ways in our culture. I think it's not only not giving up, but not basically not giving up on the goodness in people and that that's in there somewhere, even for people who have gone dark. Exactly. Um, you know... You don't do a lot of these interviews. And I think I mentioned this last week that this is a privilege for me to be able to do this with you. And I've wanted to do this for almost half a year, ever since we got connected. And I would love to talk about how you think America should kind of move forward from here with where we are currently. And you've already alluded to this to some degree about never giving up in your mind with your experience, what do you think we can do or should do to try to continue to make progress to build a more fair society, a more just society? Um, you know, you're, you're in touch with the King family and they're in my mind as close to American royalty as we have. Royalty might be the wrong word, just it, it representing the best of us in so many ways in their history as a family. What do you think about that? What, what should people be thinking about or what might they think about in terms of how to continue to make progress as a nation in that area? Well, I, you know, I've sat down and I've talked to the King family and, um, uh, I've talked with the King family. I've talked with Daryl, and uh, I've sat down and talked with a lot of people, uh, you know, that are doing the same thing that I'm doing. And uh, it, it basically turn comes around to the same thing: is uh, communication. Uh, this country's not communicating. <laughs> there, uh, I mean, we're we're definitely divided right now, and. 
people aren't willing to communicate. And and even the King family will, I mean, sit down with him and talk to him, and they'll tell you the same thing. That's one of the good, the big things that uh, Bernice, Dr. Bernice King and I talked about, uh, you know, when we had to sit down together, just this, and that was... Um, Communication is is the key and one of the most important things that we have to, you know, use to get past some of this uh, turmoil that we're in. And yep. that, you know, that's something I agree with. And we got, you know, we got to look at each other as human beings. And I mean, we all came from the same place, uh, flesh and blood. We all, I mean. It doesn't matter what religion you're or, or believe in, you know, we, we still are human beings in the same place. And we've got to look at it, at the, you know, that way. And just never give up. Just, you know, continue to uh, uh, forge forward and uh, communicate with each other and try to... Uh, you know, break this, break the mold of this, you know, terrible situation we're in now. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think we are not communicating like we should be, most likely. I'm pretty confident in that. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a need for communication. I think it's also a need for communicating with some generosity and with giving people the benefit of the doubt and leading with a loving approach to them, which I think is what affected you so much and not a judge, a judgmental perspective in that kind of communication. Before I ask you the last question, I want to just say again, Scott, that I really appreciate you doing this. I think conversations like this are extremely important um, f- for a lot of what your story represents, which is hope for change um, good overcoming evil, you know, the ability for forgiveness. I mean, the fact that in the seventies and eighties, you were leading the Tennessee Ku Klux Klan and within your lifetime, you're sitting down with Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, having a civil conversation where she's putting your arm around you is pretty amazing fact. And I think it took a lot of courage for you to do what you did and to get out and risk your life doing it. And I'm no, I know I'm not alone in saying this, but I, I have a lot of respect for that because that took a lot of courage and I'm grateful for you for doing that and for what you've dedicated your life to since then. And maybe to ask you the final question, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you want to do with the rest of your life. You know, you've still, you're still looking good, man. And I know you've had some health issues recently, but how do you want to spend your remaining years here and what what matters to you now and what do you think your the best way for you to spend your energy is to can continue doing what i'm doing now yeah trying to uh you know better better society and and bring people together and you know love and unity and you know i'm very grateful for my family and my kids uh you know, they they drifted off in that couple boys drifted off in the same direction I did at one time when they were real teenagers and 
we were following saw what dad was doing but uh i was able to uh, you know get them to a point and straighten them out with it you know they're pretty much like myself now but uh, for the future like i said just basically do what i'm doing now uh, it, even more even more than what i'm doing now you know, i like to do a lot more and uh plan on it and i'm never giving up i love it i think that's a good place to end um scott thank you again and i i hope our paths cross again down the road at some point Sure. Um, I, I love your message and thank you again for the time. It was a real honor for me to do this. Oh, I, I appreciate it. And I, I, I am honored to be able to, uh, you know, sit down and talk with you and hopefully, uh, hopefully do it a lot more. If I can be of any help, uh, in any way, just let me know, you know, how to get me. I'll do that. Thank you, buddy. Right. You too. Thank you. Take care, Scott. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 